Welcome to episode 99 of the Implant Games Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ginthy, and I've got a great show lined up for you today. So let's go ahead and get started with the news. Uh, so the big news coming from a trade show in Europe this week is a new Metal Gear game. Uh, not a Metal Gear Solid game, but a spin-off called Metal Gear Survive. Um, of course, Hideo Kojima no longer works for Konami, uh, meaning that uh, he's not associated with this project in any way. Um, the fact that there is a new Metal Gear game coming out for the Xbox One and PS4 is pretty big news and a bit unexpected. Uh, so far, fan reaction has been pretty uh, negative, um, but from it was always going to be negative no matter what it turned out to be. But let's talk about what they released. So they released a 30 second trailer on YouTube kind of showing an alternate universe, uh, an alternate Metal Gear universe. And the game seems to be a cooperative first person shooter zombie horror game. At least that's what I got out of the trailer. Um, it doesn't look terrible to me by any stretch of the word. I thought the weapons looked imaginative. I thought the zombies looked great. Um, I just it was interesting enough i don't i'm not sure if it's something i would ever buy just because i don't own a xbox one or a playstation 4 um but uh in addition to watching the trailer i did watch a couple of reaction videos um including uh sean long and the happy video game nerd johnny millennium whatever his real name is i don't know um expressing a little bit of anger and a little dis bit of disappointment that there is a new Metal Gear game and expressing disappointment that it's perhaps not the Metal Gear game that people wanted. Now, uh, Metal Gear Solid V uh, was met with uh, critical acclaim, Game of the Year, pretty much across the board. Famitsu Magazine gave it a uh, perfect score of 40 out of 40. Um, it sold well as well, so about 5 million copies worldwide. Um, and I kind of appreciate that um, Konami's not just going to go ahead and make Metal Gear 6 or whatever version that they are on, and instead uh, is doing a spin-off game. Uh, that I think is smart. So um, Nintendo and Sega have obviously done this for years with tennis games and baseball games and racing games and a, mil you know, a million other games um, to, to great success. And... Uh, yeah, even Crash Bandicoot with a pair of racing games. Um, I kind of appreciate the fact that they're not trying to, you know, rekindle something that can't be rekindled. Metal Gear was always about the espionage and about the convoluted story. And I kind of like the fact that they're just going to let that be for the time being and are doing their own thing. Um, fans are, of course, angry. I don't even know why, really. Um... I have no idea. There's nothing to get angry about here. Uh, Konami owns the Metal Gear uh, franchise, the Metal Gear IP. These games were always made uh, with Konami's money, with Konami's direction. And uh, it doesn't bother me in the least that they are going to take that license that they've invested in and keep it going. Game is slated for next year. Will it be? Uh, this game is just going to get panned. It's it's Ghostbusters all over again. Uh, fans get angry when something isn't going to be the same or treated. They fear that it's not going to be treated with the same respect. Um, I've gone over this a million times. If this game sucks, it takes nothing away from the old games. Those games are still there. Those memories are still there. And that's the way it's going to be. Sort of like Sega, you know, they keep releasing crappy Sonic games, but that doesn't make the original games any less bad, and that doesn't take away the memories that I've had with Sonic the Hedgehog over the years. So, just 
Doesn't do it for me. Doesn't make me angry. Moving on, Microsoft says, we think the future is without console generations. Uh, we've talked about this all year long now with the Sony uh, PlayStation Neo or 4.5, uh, the Microsoft One S being released uh, recently and the Project Scorpio coming out next year, that it kind of seems that the traditional five-year you know, console cycle release a new machine, and then, uh, yeah, letting it ride for five years and doing it all over again is pretty much gone, pretty much dead. Uh, we see Nintendo probably shifting towards a handheld hybrid, uh, effectively exiting that traditional console race. And I think we see Microsoft and Sony clearly identifying that the future uh, is not in a five-year cycle, but uh, more like a PC or the phone market uh, with upgrades every couple of years. Uh, being backwards compatible and just a slow evolution. Um, I really wouldn't be surprised if Microsoft is the first one to bundle uh, the Xbox as some sort of service, Xbox Live, uh, paying 10 to $15 a month, uh, getting a subsidized console, trading that in every one year or every two years like a cell phone. Um, I totally see Microsoft jumping in that first, and uh, I see Sony following them, and I think that's kind of the direction uh, gaming is probably going to go. Now, those are just speculation off the top of my head. Nothing like that has been announced, but I think it's clear um, that the business model that exists today for consoles is kind of coming to an end, and we're entering a, a, a new future, a new generation with all three of the big companies um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. Uh, as much as I really enjoyed, you know, 20 years of uh, the five-year cycle and getting excited about new hardware and seeing giant leaps technically, I think, you know, I think those days are over. So I'll be curious to see, you know, what the, the, the Neo does, especially with VR. I'll be curious to see, you know, what the Scorpio does, maybe with some 4K gaming, uh, you know, on a 4K TV. I think both of those are potentially exciting. And, uh, you know, if this kind of console upgrade cycle every year, every two years does become the thing, uh, maybe we'll be able to see... Maybe we'll be able to see more innovation, trying new things, trying to make the console more exciting every two years instead of five years. But we shall see. But I did think it was interesting that a, a high up, I want to say it was the VP of marketing, but I, I could be totally wrong. The articles on Engadget uh, basically interviewing Microsoft and Mark, Microsoft saying, I, I think the, the traditional console generations, you know, the eighth generation, ninth generation, tenth generation is pretty much over. Um, so I don't have a problem with that either. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what gaming looks like five years from now, because I think it's going to be a lot different than it was five years ago. But I've said that a lot over the last uh, year, but that's how I still feel. So let's go ahead and move on to the meat of this episode. So over the last seven or eight episodes, um, I've taken the episode number and kind of tied that to the year. So episode 99 brings us to 1999, which was, of course, uh, the launch of the Sega Dreamcast. Now, I've got my my Sega Dreamcast box right there. That is the same box that uh, it is the exact box that I bought uh, on September 9th, 1999. I still have my original console. I still have the original box. And there it is right there. So that is going to be pretty much the focus of these uh, of these five games that I'm about to talk about. So first, one of my very favorite games uh, of all time, the very first game that I ever played on my Dreamcast, uh, not counting store demos, and that's Tokyo Extreme Racer. 
Uh, this is made by a company called Genki. Uh, the most recent Tokyo Extreme Racer, I, I want to say, was on the 360, and it was brought to America as Import Tuner Challenge. Uh, I believe they had to change the name. My guess is that Crave, the company, I don't think they exist anymore, uh, owned the Tokyo Extreme Racer name in the United States. And uh, when Ubisoft published this in America, they had to use a different name. Um, but Import Tuner Challenge is a mediocre racing game on the Xbox 360. Uh, but it does feature that original highway system from Tokyo Extreme Racer on the Dreamcast. This game was a huge deal Um uh, Back in 1999, uh, because at the time it was the best looking game that existed, quite frankly, uh, at the time, especially especially over composite on an old CRT, it looked photorealistic. Um, today, the car models are pretty basic and uh, there's not a lot of special effects and the textures of the road is okay and geometry, it, it isn't photorealistic anymore, but the game is still exceptionally playable. Basically, you have to take on, I want to say, 130 rivals, uh, starting with a little piddly car and then working your way up to, to supercars. And so there's a definite progression. Um, it's kind of street racing, uh, before street racing was a thing here in America, at least. And, uh, you flash opponents, you flash your brights, they accept your race and you go and you take down, uh, different gangs and their rivals. You can win some cars. Uh, but basically it's a very linear experience from start to finish. Um, usually when I play through this game, I purchase three cars total, the beginning, the middle and the end. And, uh, it's just a really fun game to play. The controls are very strange. It doesn't play like a modern racer at all. There's a lot of understeer. Uh, that kind of snaps into oversteer. Um, you can ricochet off walls, which is mostly the fastest way to get through it. Um, but it's just a really fun, playable game. The things that it still does well is it handles upgrades uh, very nicely. Um, so it's not overly complex and realistic how you upgrade your cars. It's very approachable and what was also neat about this game is this is before every racing game basically bought licenses uh, for cars. So all the cars in this game are 100% real, uh, but they're all unlicensed. So you'll see the Mazda RX-7, you'll see the uh, Acura or Honda NSX, uh, you'll see the Nissan Skyline, the Toyota Supra, just some really amazing cars. And a couple of old muscle cars too, an old Porsche and an old Datsun. Um, so that's neat as well. And this came out two years before the Fast and the Furious. So this was kind of my entry point into that whole tuner scene that really didn't exist in Wisconsin in 1999. Um, the other thing I really dig about it uh, has a very Japanese soundtrack, including some tracks with uh, Japanese vocals, which is really awesome. And the, the frame rate moves along at 60 frames per second. Now, this was pretty unprecedented back in 1999. Now, a lot of fighters on the PlayStation uh, ran at 60 frames per second. And uh, something like F-Zero X on the Nintendo 64 ran at 60 frames per second. But I can't really think of any other racing games. Street Racer on the PlayStation ran at 60 frames per second, but that game's terrible. Um, but it was it was new, it was exciting, and it was that leap up. This game looks so much better than Gran Turismo 2. It's kind of unbelievable. And what was also neat about this, if you were a, a fanboy back in the day, 
Um, before the PlayStation 2 was released, Sony had this Gran Turismo style like tech demo of just a car racing around a night circuit. And Tokyo Extreme Racer looked every bit as good as that. So if you were a Sega fanboy, you were like, ah, the Dreamcast is just as powerful as the PlayStation 2. And it was kind of like the answer or the response. And it, it was just, it was really exciting. It's a game I used to play through every year. I haven't touched it yet this year. Maybe I'll have to revisit that. Uh, but it's a game that I uh, immensely enjoy. It's not the greatest game ever made, but it is probably my favorite game ever made. I just, I absolutely adore it. Tokyo Extreme Racer. Uh, the next game is Hydro Thunder. Like Tokyo Extreme Racer, this was a launch title. Um, I picked this up fairly early on. Um, if you, weird thing about the, the Midway Dreamcast launch games is they didn't support VGA. Um, however, they quickly fixed that when they made the next batch and they put a sticker and it was like a green sticker that said hot new and they put that right on the manual and uh, those games all have VGA uh, enabled by default however these all work with the swap trick just fine but anyway that's beyond <laughs> I guess that doesn't really matter but Hydro Thunder is another racing game and uh, again one of my favorite racing games ever made this is a speedboat or powerboat uh, arcade style racing game uh, what i really dig about this game is there's just 12 tracks total and 12 boats total i want to say um, which means it encourages repeat playthroughs and because it's a an arcade game meant to munch quarters it's very difficult um, but not impossible it has a good challenge but it's not unfair um, it's not hard, you know, it's challenging. Uh, it's that perfect balance. But basically what you want to do in Hydro Thunder is nab, figure out where every single boost is on the course, and you want to be boosting the entire race from start to finish. And if you can accomplish that, then you will, you know, place in the top three, two, or first place, depending on the difficulty. I most recently did this uh, review of the Xbox version. This was ported over, the Dreamcast version was ported to the Xbox on one of the Midway Classics, and uh, it's pretty great. It, it looks exactly like the Dreamcast version. It plays exactly like the Dreamcast version. Would have appreciated if they added a widescreen option, but I guess that's here nor there. But that's another cheap way to get this game. And uh, yeah, just a terrific racing game. The, the courses are all based on different areas of the world. So there's like China, there's like the Grand Canyon and Utah and just a million different Greece, you know, all the canals, stuff like that. And uh, there's a ton of shortcuts, and that's the other secret to the game. So it's kind of like a platformer where you have to learn all the nuances of the level, find the shortcuts, uh, and map a course through every shortcut to find every boost to kind of maximize your speed. And uh, it's just absolutely phenomenal. One of the one of those great racers that just don't seem to exist anymore. So Hydro Thunder, 1999, amazing. Uh, moving on, uh, Revolt on the Dreamcast. Now, this was also released on the PC, which is a great version. Um, the PlayStation and Nintendo 64 ports, you'll just want to avoid those. Uh, but Revolt on the Dreamcast is a, a, a superb RC uh, remote control car racing game. Um, the controls are very twitchy, um, but also very realistic. Now, I've talked about racing go-karts a lot, uh, but when I was a kid, I actually raced remote control cars. Um, so as you can see, racing has always been part of my DNA, and that's kind of why I, I favor 
racing games over any other genre. But uh, yeah, so Revolt got me excited. As a teenager, it reminded me of being a kid, uh, racing remote control cars. Very twitchy, uh, very fun. Again, what makes this game so great is the tracks, the course design. Um, Acclaim, I believe this was developed in-house by Acclaim. I don't believe they just published it. I'd have to look it up, but I'm not going to. Um, but what makes this game so great are the courses. So obviously you're racing through neighborhoods, you're racing through grocery stores, you're racing through museums, you're racing through the Wild West, which I guess doesn't quite fit the theme. Uh, you're racing on a giant cruise ship and... Um, uh, um, there's another one. I don't know what the word is. Not like a garden, like a botanical garden, I guess would be the word. Just, and it's just so clever in the way they turn these real world things into uh, courses for RC cars is just phenomenal. Um, just a great, brilliant racing game. One that I like quite a bit. There's also a ton of replay value, more than I'll ever be able to get through uh, this day and age, um, including a time trial mode, a stunt mode, and there's time trial stunt, there's the normal championship, single race, uh, but basically winning all of these things earns you more cars. So there's like 30 or 40 different cars to unlock, including fantasy vehicles like shopping carts that don't even work in all the levels, uh, a UFO. It, it's just, there's even a, tra uh, a car, much like roll cage, that can flip over and still go because the wheels are bigger than the body. Just really awesome stuff like that. So if you're into a challenging uh, Dreamcast game, a challenging racing game, I highly recommend Revolt. Um, just a, a truly stunning game, especially on the Dreamcast and the PC. Uh, next is going to be an actually a PlayStation game. Uh, I talked about this game back on episode 77, so if my math is right, that was probably five months ago, um, and that is Sledstorm for the PlayStation. Now, I recently talked about this um, on a video on the YouTube channel called Five Great PlayStation Games, and Sledstorm is another phenomenal racing game. As you can see, that's kind of the theme of the this segment of the show. This is a snow machine or a snowmobile racing game, and uh, again, it just... It's just brilliant. Uh, the courses uh, have that perfect like arcade mix where they're tough. You have to learn them. There's different jumps. There's a ton of shortcuts, uh, which are key to success. And the courses is what makes the game so good. But the controls are actually really interesting as well. Uh, Electronic Arts did an awesome job kind of simulating uh, what it's like to ride a snowmobile. Now, I live in Wisconsin, so of course I've ridden a snowmobile. Haven't raced them, though. Um, so it does a decent job of making it feel like your front skis are actually digging into the snow. And just sort of the delay that comes with steering a snowmobile is captured really, really well. Um, and that's what makes the game so good. The controls are different, just like Hydro Thunder, just like Tokyo Extreme Racer, just like Revolt. These four racing games all control completely different, and uh, they're all awesome because of it. So if you have a PlayStation, if for some reason you don't have Sledstorm, uh, it's just a must-own. You don't even have to be a fan of racing games. It's just a brilliant game. Uh, so moving on to the fifth game, not a racing game. Uh, this was released in Japan in 1999. It didn't come out in the U.S. until 2000. And that, of course, is Shenmue. I've beaten this game twice now. Once back in 2000 and then once last year, so 2015. And uh, it's a game that, in my opinion, is better today than it was back then. Uh, back in... So this is sort of a, a sandbox game, but not a sandbox game. It's story-driven. 
um, but you can waste a lot of time doing whatever you want. The best way to explain it is it's kind of a, a life simulator almost. So you can spend your time just wandering around doing whatever you see fit, playing arcade games, playing darts. Um, I, th I thought there was a pool mini game in there, but I couldn't find it last time I played through it. So I don't remember what that's all about. Uh, you can collect a lot of different capsule toys. Um, you can just waste a lot of time if you so choose. Now, that was pretty... Nothing had ever really done that before back in 1999. Um, Grand Theft Auto 3 hadn't come out yet. Um, I guess Driver had been out uh, on the PlayStation where you could spend a lot of time doing nothing if you wanted. Um, but this really built a living, breathing little section of uh, of Japan. And it was really just fun to waste a lot of time. Um, it also introduced quick time events, um, which is kind of like, um, like an FMV game on the Sega CD where you just wait for the screen to flash a button, then you push the button and the story goes on. So it introduced that as a main part of uh, the action. Um, so it created a lot of neat action sequences um, that couldn't exist if you were simply just running around the world. And it did it really well. Uh, it was criticized when it came out as not being interactive enough, but now that's how every adventure action game works. So they were definitely ahead of the curve. So I guess what I'm trying to say is Shenmue was ahead of the curve. It had an open world. It had quick time events. Um, and you could wander around being bored if you so chose. Or you could just kind of get sucked into the world and waste a lot of time and not accomplish anything if you want um and it makes it uh, an awesome adventure game really uh on top of that there was a deep fighting system i think this had roots as a virtual fighter spin-off virtual fighter rpg style game um so you kind of need to spend a lot of time practicing your moves and leveling up your moves um so that when you get to some of the tougher fights at the end of the game you're doing enough damage not to struggle now uh when i played through this last i was just trying to get through the game as quickly as i could i kind of missed that section of the game i didn't practice my moves it's still possible to beat the game but it's a lot harder than it needs to be um, the soundtrack is just, quite frankly, epic. Again, it feels like a big musical score like you'd find in a, in a huge Hollywood movie. Uh, the voice acting is a bit dry. That probably is the thing that hasn't aged the best. And then, of course, with all that dialogue fitting on um, basically three you know gigabyte discs, um, it sounds very compressed, uh, which kind of sucks too, but it doesn't really take away from the game. It kind of gives it such charm in a way. So if you haven't played the original Shenmue on the Dreamcast and you kind of dig uh, an adventure game or an open world game and you're not afraid of uh, using your own imagination to keep yourself entertained at times, I highly recommend it. Um, just an absolute blast to play from beginning to end. All right, so I'm going to move on to some questions. I have two questions that are related, and this is in relation to Sonic Adventure on the Dreamcast, which I talked about uh, in episode 98. Uh, Douglas Harris says, I'm with you too, Chris. A lot of hate for Sonic Adventure comes from kids that didn't grow up with it on the Dreamcast. It still holds up fantastically, in my opinion, and is gushing with style, variety, superb controls, and most of all, fun. Referral Madness says kids that didn't grow up with the Dreamcast aren't the ones that hate on Sonic Adventure. They don't even know what a Dreamcast is. The hate comes from people who dislike the game because they feel that the 2D Mega Drive Sonic games are better. Um, so, one guy says that uh, it's the people uh, that uh, grew up with the original trilogy on the Genesis. The other one says it's the people that started gaming after the Dreamcast, and I think both answers are absolutely correct. Uh, there's a YouTuber called Exo Paradigm Gamer. 
um, decent, good YouTuber, successful YouTuber. Um, but one thing that always bugs me about his Sonic reviews is that he kind of lumps people into different groups. Um, so I think he calls the people that like the Genesis game, the classicists. Um, he calls the people that like the Dreamcast era games. So Sonic Adventure, Adventure 2, Heroes, and Shadow the Hedgehog. He calls them the Dreamcastians. And then uh, the Boost games. So Sonic um, Unleashed, Sonic Generation, Sonic Colors. Um, he calls them the Boost era. And uh, it bugs me. I don't like... Th- lumping people into groups because I think that is <laughs> I think that's a, a lot of the problems we have as society today is that we want to lump everybody into groups and then you know use that as an excuse to discriminate against them and uh, I, I don't like lumping Sonic fans into those different eras but I think there is a little bit of truth uh, in those statements the people that grew up with the Genesis era Sonic games tend to not like the more modern games. The people that like the Boost era Sonic games uh, have a hard time going back to the Adventure series. And uh, that's because Sonic is so old. And Sega, thankfully, uh, has slowly changed uh, the formula as the years go on. And again, like I talked about with Metal Gear, uh, sometimes change is okay. It's good. You kind of have to evolve and adapt to different tastes. Um, so I like games from all of those different Sonic generations and I even love some of the you know the one-offs like Sonic Lost World is a game that I enjoy immensely and I think doesn't get enough love the advanced series as well um so yeah I think when a game is too different from what somebody expects um, and it doesn't meet their expectation uh, they take that not meeting their expectation or that disappointment and they can no longer look at a game objectively oh this isn't enough like sonic 3 and knuckles therefore i don't like it Uh, that's sonic cd's problem it's not enough like sonic 3 and knuckles so people hate it Um, or sonic unleashed uh, isn't enough like sonic adventure 2 so therefore i don't like it Uh, even though sonic unleashed is an incredibly polished game uh, the Werehog segments are uh, very fun. Uh, there is a lot of depth to the gameplay, and some of the best puzzles uh, I've ever played in a 3D game are all found in those Werehog segments of Sonic Unleashed. Uh, but because that doesn't fit somebody's definition of a Sonic game, it is therefore bad. Um, and I just don't buy into that logic in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so I think both are correct. Uh, both statements are well written, well thought out. Thank you, and I agree with you both. Um, the next question comes from Cancelo Tordo. Regarding why Nintendo doesn't support fan creations, most likely they don't do it because they feel they don't have to. Um, I agree. I think in a lot of ways Nintendo has become very complacent over the years. And uh, while that has allowed them to mostly remain profitable and relevant, um, I, I think that they don't do enough to kind of branch out and try new things, including more fan support, building a Nintendo community, things like that. Things that Sega has sort of gotten right over the last year or so, uh, Nintendo kind of shies away from. I feel it's a very complacent company. I don't have a problem that they're slow uh, to evolve and adapt. I do have a problem that I feel they're very complacent at times and they don't innovate enough. So thank you for the comment. Last comment... I wonder. I'll read it anyway. This comes from Christian. I especially like your recent review of Crash Bandicoot The Wrath of Cortex. Everyone hates on this game and it makes me sad because I really like this game as a kid. It scares me to death that Sony or Universal, whoever owns the Crash games, is going to remake the original Crash trilogy in 3D. 
Um, because like Metal Gear Survive, uh, there's going to be something wrong. The jumping isn't going to be quite what somebody remembers, or there's going to be some little thing in there that people are just going to rip to shreds. Um, and I, if I was uh, the owner of the Crash Bandicoot IP, I would just simply, I, I wouldn't re-release games uh, because it's just going to become like the Sonic games. No matter what you do, um, you're not going to appease the old fans. And because you're not changing enough, you're not going to create new fans. Um, so yeah, Crash Bandicoot The Wrath of Cortex, uh, one of my favorite 3D platformers of all time. I find it very, very enjoyable. Um, I've played two out of the three games of the original Crash trilogy, and I enjoy them a lot. Uh, but there's something about Crash Bandicoot Wrath of Cortex that really grabs me. I don't know if it's the music. I don't know if it's the bump in resolution that the Xbox, PlayStation 2, and GameCube provided. Um, I don't know if it's the um, the difficulty curve, which was smoothed way out compared to the original games um there's something very accessible to that game and, and something that i can when i sit there and play that i can play it in one sitting from beginning to end because i find the experience so engaging from start to finish so whether it's too similar to the original trilogy whether some stupid thing isn't enough like the original trilogy like it just i don't care about any of that the game's fun and i thoroughly enjoy it so that's going to bring us to the cheap's cheap games segment of today's program collecting old retro games can be very expensive but it doesn't have to be uh, so i'm going to talk about two games that uh, cost me less than five dollars um usually i have two games one that's i paid less than five for but goes more one that i paid less than five dollars for and still is less than five uh, but these two games i paid less than five dollars for and you can't and find them both for less than five dollars uh, if you're very patient on ebay chances are you'll spend a few dollars more than that so the decision is yours so these are both going to be master system games now if you've noticed over the last uh, 15 or 20 episodes that i've done this most of my master system collection uh was like two dollars or three dollars or four dollars like i just what I did in the early 2000s, whenever I saw a Master System game, I just bought it. And they were practically giving them away. So this is Shinobi. Oh, I screwed up the camera. So this is Shinobi on... Look at that. Yeah, the Master System doesn't photo well, does it? Anyway, this says $3.99. This is Shinobi on the Master System. I don't actually like this game at all. Um, however, this is usually on people's top 10 lists for the Master System. Um, I don't quite get why, um, but whatever. Um, but people do love it. I do love the FM soundtrack on this. There's five or six levels, uh, decent bosses, decent graphics for the Master System. However, the gameplay for me is a bit lacking. Um, you have Ninja Stars, and it's pretty much the game. Yeah, it's a side-scrolling action game. A lot of people really dig it. Uh, if you like side-scrolling action games, check it out. Uh, the next one I paid $1.99 for, and this is Choplifter on the Master System. Uh, this is a game that I actually enjoy quite a bit. Um, this, I want to say Sega, gosh, how, what is the story of Choplifter? I want to say it was an old PC game. Uh, Sega licensed the rights to the Choplifter name and then released it in arcades and then ported that arcade version to the Master System. Uh, in my opinion, this might be the most visually impressive Master System game ever released. There is a ton of parallax scrolling. Uh, the music is, quite frankly, phenomenal. It's some of the catchiest music, some of the most layered, deep compositions I've heard on the Master System. Uh, no FM sound here, just pure PSG Master System sound. 
And uh, the gameplay is actually very complex. So you pilot a helicopter and you have to make your way through a level, rescue 16 hostages, bring them back to the helipad and go do it again. Um, however, the helicopter shoots rather strange. So when you move forward, the helicopter kind of angles down. When a helicopter, you know, accelerates, that's kind of what it does. Um, however, if you stop accelerating, then it will level back out. It just creates this really interesting dynamic. It just plays unlike any other shooting style game that I've ever played before. Now, it's also ridiculously hard. Um, I wonder if there's cheat codes. I don't know. I can get pretty far in the game. I've never beaten it before. It's just way too hard. I want to say I've gotten to the moon level. I don't know how far. I don't remember how far it gets at all. But anyway, uh, very hard game. 8-bit hard for sure. Beautiful game on the Master System. Sounds amazing. Super smooth controls. Just a really awesome game on the Master System. Now, this is a lot easier to find. A cartridge-only copy on eBay for less than $5. Uh, so if you have a Master System and you're struggling to get into some of those classic Master System games, maybe like Shinobi, maybe like Outrun, uh, maybe like Wonder Boy, you're playing these classic games and you're like, this just isn't the NES, it's not doing it for me, uh, give Choplifter a try. It's something very different, something that not a lot of people talk about. Uh, and one of my very favorite games on the system. So that's going to do it for today's episode. So if you are... How should we do it today? If you are watching this and you'd like to listen to this like a normal podcast, uh, I have a link to the RSS feed, the, the Google Play link, along with the Apple iTunes link in the description below. If you are listening to the show and you would like to watch the episode, uh, see that beautiful Dreamcast there, or maybe you want to see the uh, super graphics and my CRT down there, um, or any of the other content I produce every week, check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash implantgames, and... Uh, Again, sorry to the Shinobi fans, I know I'm a bit tough on that game, but uh, that's how I feel. But until next time, have a great week.